The reality is many of the people who would benefit the most from a professional interior designer are the people who have had to get creative with storage in a smaller kitchen or turn your guest bedroom into an office because you're working from home. And to be honest, I always thought interior design was something I couldn't afford, but Aisley Interiors is an online interior design service available to everyone. So here's how it works. First, you complete their questionnaire so your designer can understand your style and your budget. You will provide them with some measurements of the room. You can upload pictures of the room or anything that you have chosen for the space. That part took me maybe 15 minutes. I sent them examples from Pinterest of what I liked because I didn't have anything picked out yet. And then your designer will create a 3D model of your space to scale. She even put my dog laying on the couch. I was like, this is this is my living room. I love it. <laughs> they use colors that you want, furniture to match your style, and any other decor that you need. You provide feedback to ensure that things are exactly as you need them. And then afterwards, you get a printable form with all the information talked about in your consultation and links to any pieces of furniture or fixtures or decor that was sourced for you. That was my favorite thing, just to be able to click and buy it. So go to aislinginteriors.com and complete the quiz on the space that you want to redesign. Use the code NOISE at checkout to receive 10% off any booking. That's aislinginteriors.com with the code NOISE, N-O-I-S-E, at checkout to receive 10% off any booking. These links are all in the show notes if you missed them, as well as on my website. I define self-care as meeting yourself with compassionate presence in the moment here as it finds you. It's not about like buying more stuff that you probably don't need. It's not about putting more stuff on your to-do list or your calendar. Sustainable self-care is how much can you slow down and meet your real actual needs as they are. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 474 with guest Christy Tending. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I am getting ready to go to Asheville tomorrow to host a Daring Way retreat for some amazing women. And it got me thinking that I probably forgot to tell you that I have brought back the Daring Way curriculum to my one-on-one coaching practice. So if you know Brene Brown's work, if you caught her HBO special on her latest book, Atlas of the Heart, or if you read the book, or if you got her, if you caught her Netflix Call to Courage special, or if you're just familiar with her TED Talks, you might want to come and check it out, especially if you are someone who likes to do work privately one-on-one. Maybe groups just aren't your thing yet, and you were hesitant to come with us on the retreat. So if you go to andreaowen.com slash coaching, you'll see that 
that page is there that tells you a little bit about what the objectives are, what your takeaways will be, and an opportunity to fill out an application and um, maybe have a chat with me. I also offer coaching, which I just call open sessions, where you bring your primary focus and we get to work. We get to work. And I have two lead coaches that also do that kind of coaching, Liz and Sabrina, who may be a better fit for you. But speaking of doing the work, we are continuing on with our self-care theme. And I just love this theme. I, I You know, you guys know, I just love personal development. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. And I know that you are too. Christy Tending is here. And I think I found her on Instagram, not on TikTok. Maybe I did find her on TikTok. I can't remember. <laughs> Somewhere on social media, I found her and she specializes in self-care. So I knew I had to have her on. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Christy Tending is an activist, educator, and writer. She teaches online courses about sustainable self-care to students all over the world and hosts the podcast, Tending Your Life. Her specialty is helping people dissolve overwhelm, heal burnout, and advocate for themselves. She lives on occupied Ohon territory, which is Oakland, California, with her family. You can learn more about her work at christytending.com, so without Further ado, here is Christy. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. I am too. And I I saw your website and immediately from your homepage, I was like, I have to, I have to have this woman on. Yes, a hundred times yes. And I, I know you talk about a handful of of topics. So I, I might jump around with my questions a little bit, but I want to start with. Can you tell us what you mean by what you call sustainable self-care? Because I feel like self-care is this word that's been kind of a buzzword in the self-help industry over the last few years. So what do you mean by sustainable self-care and how does one practice that in their life? Sure. So I noticed in my own life, so I came to self-care out of I would say probably what could be construed as like a mental health crisis. I was dealing with depression and PTSD and I'd been an activist for a bunch of years and was really, I was, I was struggling big time. I was also dealing with a lot of chronic pain issues. So I came to kind of my self-care journey, if you want to call it that really from this kind of crisis point of like, I can't continue to live my life the way I've been living my life. Uh, and and be okay. So mm-hmm. I, Which went, I don't think is very uncommon for women. Like I think that we can tolerate a lot before we sort of decide like, oh my gosh, I need to help myself. No, we're really good at waiting until the last possible moment to like right. give ourselves that life raft. And so I dove into like yoga and meditation and, you know, doing all of these things for myself, you know, eating a certain way and living a certain way and spending my time in certain ways. And what I realized in my self-care practice was that I was replicating the same kind of overwork, overachieving, um, like almost like hoarding mentality that I'd had in the overwork that had led me to self-care in the first place. And I think that- So you were adding more things to your to-do list? I was just like adding things to my to-do list. And what I realized was I needed to be subtracting. And so I define self-care as meeting yourself with compassionate presence in the moment here as it finds you. 
It's not about like buying more stuff that you probably don't need. It's not about putting more stuff on your to-do list or your calendar, which none of us need that Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this, Mm -hmm. the year of our pandemic. (laughs) Right, right. I'm raising my hand over here. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's it's really about, to me, sustainable self-care is how much can you slow down and meet your real actual needs as they are and not fill it up with more stuff. And I'm, I'm really good at like filling up my life with all kinds of projects and to-dos and classes and all of that. And really when I'm practicing a self-care, it's about like, how slow can I be? How much can I subtract? How much can I focus on this moment right here and being with myself and my own needs in that moment? Wow. I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I imagine there's people listening to this who are listening to this going, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I agree with you. And then also there's still a part of me at the same time that feels like my fists are, are clenching together. Like, oh my gosh, what would that, like our self-worth I think is so wrapped up in our productivity yeah. that it might seem counterintuitive, but, and this is something that I talk about in my next book that's coming out. My friend, Elizabeth Dialto asks the question, what is our conditioning and what is our truth? And so it sounds to me that you're asking people, and I love the term compassionate presence. Is that what you called it? Yeah. That like, that's your truth telling you to pull things back. And actually you've been conditioned to add things on. Right. I mean, I think it's this capitalist kind of mentality of my productivity is my worth. My achievement is my worth. The more stuff I buy, the more successful I am. And and really, to me, self-care is about how much can we, as you say, kind of like strip away that conditioning and get back to who am I really? And what do I really need? If I slow down long enough to actually hear my real needs, what are they? Okay. So what does, which brings me to my, um, I wanted to kind of give it like a second, second part of this question. Now that you just said that, and I know that you work with, with women who's on this specific topic, what do you find is the thing that they discover it is that they need? Honestly, most people want the time and the space and the quiet to hear their own voices. I work with a lot of, I work with a lot of activists like me, not a huge surprise. Um, It's a little bit of a, like, if you build it, they will come kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. And, and I also work with a lot of caregivers. So a lot of what you know, we now call kind of frontline workers. I work with a lot Mm -hmm. of nurses and social workers and teachers and, and people whose caring is really kind of their currency in the world. I work with a lot of parents who are caring for their children. I work with a lot of people who's, who are caring for their parents. Um, And, and really, really what they want is some kind of time and space to hear their own needs kind of beyond that conditioning beyond that narrative that they've been fed that 
their worth is wrapped up in how much can they care for other people. Mm -hmm. It's, it's discovering that that thing that they really want, even if it's really inconvenient for everybody else. And I've been, I've been kind of messing around with this idea lately of like, how inconvenient could I be? Like before the wheels really come off this thing, because I think so many of us, like so many women are conditioned to be as accommodating and nurturing and convenient um, for people around us. And the question that I'm really messing around with is like, how much can I interrupt that convenience? Yeah. How much can, how much can I get what I want, even if it isn't, you know, on everybody else's, you know, timetable and schedule and, you know, how much can I not wait until everybody else is taken care of before I meet my own needs? Which can feel radical too. Oh, it, it, it is absolutely radical. Yeah. It doesn't just feel radical. It is radical. Like the it feeling. <laughs> yes. And I love this so much. I've been, I've been talking ad nauseum to my audience about my own therapy journey. So I hired a new therapist I don't remember when it was. It was it was not that long after COVID hit. And, you know, I think a lot of us were kind of faced with our own shit. And I dove in headfirst to in trauma therapy. And one of the things that I kind of already knew was a little bit of a subconscious belief was that I am a quote unquote difficult woman. Mm. Um, and my ex-husband made me feel this way. And I just made up that I was super difficult and just, and difficult to be married to difficult to be a friend of just all around difficult. And what I have come to realize and still like I struggle you know, if I have to email a contractor or something and say like, Hey, I'm not happy with how things are going. Like, I'm like, Oh, I don't want, I don't want her to think that I'm being a diva, like that type of thing. Right. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to dig into this. And when you take like a few giant steps back and look at the big picture, I'm really not like, <laughs> no, <laughs> can I be a pain in the ass sometimes? Sure. We all can, but it, it's really just about asking for, to get my needs met. Like that's at the end of the day, in simple terms, that's all it is. It was an absolute stunning shock to me. I, so I used to talk a lot kind of jokingly about how self-care is not all bubble baths and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then after my son was born, what I realized is the thing that feels really good for my body, I have scoliosis. And so I deal with a lot of chronic pain stuff. The thing that feels really good for my body at the end of the day is like a really hot bath. I was like so embarrassed to discover this as the person who'd been preaching against bubble baths for all these years. It was like so humiliating to have to like come out to my audience <laughs> as a like a bubble bath yeah. devotee. <laughs> but what I was most shocked to discover was like, I was able to take a bubble bath, not like once in a blue moon, not once in a while, not once a month, almost every single night. And nobody in my house has died from this yet. Right. It was unbelievable to me. I was like, wait. You're all surviving this? Amazing. What yeah, else could I do? And it made me curious. Like, what, how How else? How far can I push this? What else can I get away with? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> when it's just you taking care of yourself. Okay. Right. I love this conversation. I'm, I'm also curious because you mentioned about being an activist. So tell us about your activist journey and how that's informed the work that you do currently. 
Yeah. So I, I have always been a giant hippie. Um, I grew up horseback riding and loved being outside, loved being in the country. And, you know, I loved the earth. Like I loved, you know, riding my horse and watching the sunset or riding home in the dark. And, you know, I just, I love, I love the earth. I love our planet. I love the beauty. There's a hummingbird that's nesting outside our dining room window right now. And this Mm -hmm. has been like the focal point of my household for like the last two (laughs) weeks. This gives you like some kind of insight into, into like what inspires me. And so it's not a huge shock that I became an environmental justice activist. And I got started with kind of human rights activism and environmental activism in high school. And then you know, that kind of took off when I was in college and I became an organizer and a trainer. And I've now been working with kind of the same core group of people um, here in the Bay Area for the last, I think it's been almost 15 years, um, which is pretty amazing. And, and really my activism is, is looking at kind of the intersection of climate change and indigenous rights. So looking at pipelines and infrastructure projects that are impacting them and and land rights and all of those things. I actually lived in, in an indigenous community the summer after college. And what I realized that kind of, that really shaped my activist journey was just how emotionally invested I get in this. It's not... Um, it's not just that I like to stir up trouble, which I do. And it's Mm -hmm. not just that I have this very specific kind of theory of change, which I do, but it's that for me, I have this vision of the future that I feel so passionate about kind of collectively moving us towards that, that I get really emotionally wrapped up in this. And so it does, it it takes a lot of emotional energy for me. And, you know, I think one of the things that I discovered, I read this really amazing book called Trauma Stewardship that talks about burnout and talks about compassion fatigue and secondary trauma and all of these things. And the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm just like, I'm checking all the boxes. Yeah. As somebody who you know, is not just there to win or to be right, but really wants to create this vision for the future. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of my mentors is a woman named Adrienne Marie Brown, and she talks a lot about kind of the power of visionary imagination to kind of bring people along um, an activist path. And I have that like really in spades, like the things that I want in this world, I can like, I can almost taste them. Because I'm so, I'm so excited by the possibility of living in a world where people are free, living in a world where, you know, we're not facing climate disaster after climate disaster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and so I do have to be really kind of cautious with my energy. Now, I, I love, I still love taking risks, even as a parent, I'm all about taking risks for 
the future that you want. But I also have to be kind of cautious about my energy of what am I kind of splashing out there and who am I doing it with and making sure that I'm balancing that with a lot of care and rest and, and nourishment and resourcing myself. Yes. I, I love, and I just, I thank you for talking about your activism and being so transparent about what that, what it looks like for you from the inside. And I do, I just don't think that there's any accidents about what, we're here to do. Um, I think people get, and this is just a side note. I think people get caught up in their purpose mm-hmm. and people feel bad and beat themselves up. Like, Oh, I don't have that purpose. Like Christy does. And don't, I don't feel as called to do, you know, environmental activism and what's my purpose. What's my purpose. I also just as a side note, want to tell people your path is your purpose. You know, just having the path and the self-development journey that you're on is many people's purpose. That being said, I love that you talked about how important self-care is in this work and compassion fatigue very much is a thing, whether you are in a helping profession or not. And I just think some people are wired that way where some people can compartmentalize easier than others. And then there are those of us who, um, just, you know, we hear people's stories, whether it's a collective story of a certain group of people or it is individual stories. Like, I mean, I have one friend who gets so taken out, like her hair starts falling out and she is taken out for weeks. So she has very much had to, had to learn like what she can and cannot take on. And it's, it's so fascinating how it, it varies from person to person, but like we cannot, and I'm sure people have heard this so many times, but we cannot fill other people's cup up if ours is empty, just can't. Well, and there's a reason why I don't work in the in the nonprofit world anymore. I I've had a number of, you know, nine to five jobs in my career where I was working at environmental or human rights nonprofits. And I love the work. And at the same time, I don't want my income to be contingent on my ability to perform that work from nine to five, Monday through Friday. Like, and, and so that's the other thing that I would say is that if you are called to activist work or to helping work in any way, don't get caught up in this belief that it has to be your career. There are lots of ways to do this that don't rely on you making this like to tying this to your own personal survival. (laughs) Like, it can be a hobby. You mean like, (laughs) well, not that it's necessarily, not that it's necessarily a hobby, but it's not something that you have to rely on in order to like have health insurance and a house. Okay. You know, it can be something that you volunteer on weekends or Mm -hmm. you do things after work or whatever it is, but it, yeah. Or if you have no time, then you donate money if you can. And yeah. Right. Or you share on social media or you take the time to educate yourself or you have these conversations in your own life, with your kids, with your parents, with your friends, you know, you're, you're, you can still be kind of working these things out in your own life without tying your career to it. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I, and I want to just go, circle back a little bit to what we were talking about before. And um, can you talk to us about what is the difference between self-advocacy 
and self-care? And when might we need to practice self-advocacy instead of self-care? So self-advocacy was this phrase that popped into my head in the shower. Again, I'm all about the hot water. Everything good happens to me in hot water. So I, my son was maybe eight months old and I was like super burned out and I'm standing in the shower and I'm thinking to myself, I am literally a self-care coach and I massively do not have my shit together. Like I'm, I'm, I was struggling so immensely and you know, what occurred to me is like all of these self-care practices that I had been relying on were either, you know, not available, not possible, or like not working, frankly, Mm -hmm. after having my son. And I realized that what I needed was not in fact self-care, but it was what I came to call self-advocacy. And what I've also realized is that the people I know in my life who are kind of the fiercest advocates, the fiercest activists for other people are the ones who are truly terrible at advocating for themselves in their own lives. Like they will chain themselves to a tree. They will blockade a road. They will do all kinds of daring, dangerous stuff in order to, you know, stand up for a cause, but they're not having kind of those honest conversations in their own lives. And they're not, they're not standing up for themselves and what they need. And so to me, self-advocacy is, is sort of the relational piece of self-care. It's how do we talk to the people in our lives about this is not working, whether it's, you know, at your day job, having a conversation with your boss of like, I am overworked and I am on the verge of burnout and we need to shift things. Mm -hmm. Having a conversation with your spouse of like, I need some me time, friends. I love you to pieces, but I need, you know, some dedicated time by myself. That's how the bath taking came about, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But, But being able to kind of stand up for your own needs proactively, not just caring for yourself and kind of recuperating afterwards, but being a little bit more proactive in terms of setting up your life in a way that is inherently, um, inherently feels caring and inherently feels like something that's resourcing you. I love that. And thank you for differentiating that. And it reminds me of, I, I coach people here on the podcast every once in a while. And I had someone that came on we'll drop that link in the show notes. And the conversation started out with, she wanted to figure out how to have more time to have more self-care and like mm-hmm. do these things for herself and prioritize herself. And what, what the, what we ended up figuring out, or I should say, you know, what I, and what I got out of her is that she wasn't having a conversation with her partner about him helping her more. You know, right. she was taking on the brunt of everything when they both worked full time and had two children. And so, yeah, I'm going to drop that in for anybody who, who might be struggling with that. And so you can get some, some tips on, on what to do there. This podcast sponsor has a product that I use every day. And I started taking AG1 because a, I wanted more energy, but also I wanted other drink options that weren't something with a lot of sugar or just plain water. <laughs> So that's one of the reasons that I tried it. So what exactly is AG1? With one scoop, you are absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, 
whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, say that three times fast, to help you start your day right. The special blend of ingredients will support your gut health, your nervous system, yay, your immune system, yay, your energy recovery focus, and aging. Some of the things that I love about it, it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals or artificial anything, and it still tastes really good. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take really great care of yourself. It costs less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than perhaps a cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash noise. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash noise to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, you found yourself in that place of going around in circles with yourself, focusing or even obsessing on a problem in your life without feeling like it's even an option to look at the solution. And I understand it can be hard to train yourself out of what I call like problem land, but a therapist can help you become a better problem solver and then making it easier to accomplish your goals no matter what those goals are. And one of the many things I love about therapy is that most of the time, if I'm being honest, I go in pretty convinced that my problems are caused caused by other people, right? <laughs> then my therapist will gently point out my own blind spots and where I can change my thinking or perspective. And there's a lot of personal freedom in that. So with BetterHelp, you fill out a brief survey, you get matched with a therapist, and if that person isn't a great fit, you can switch therapists. BetterHelp is affordable, accessible, and you don't have to leave your house. When you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash kickass today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash kickass. You had written a piece, an article about quitting drinking. And Mm -hmm. I know that you have some time under your belt and I would love for you to just kind of tell us your story. Um, You know, I have a whole recovery series on my podcast. And for those of you who might be interested in listening to those, I will drop that link in the show notes as well. I think we have about 20 or so episodes that, that totally focus on that. But when I do have a guest on who has some experience here, I always love to get like when, how did you come to this conclusion? Like what made you decide that you, that abstinence was better for you than moderating your drinking? I spent a number of years justifying my drinking to myself and really being super clear that I was not a person with a problem. Um, I was not a person from the outside who anyone, like nobody was giving me the side eye at parties being like, she really has a problem. Um, There was no rock bottom. I was not, you know, putting my family or our finances in danger, but I have enough people in my life who have not had healthy relationships with alcohol um, in my lifetime. And 
it really just took one final bad hangover for me to look myself in the mirror and and just say enough is enough i'm done and and while i i i've talked about this too how i felt i expected to feel a lot of relief and like grace in recovery and all i felt was like really pissed off for the first few months <laughs> Was like, that was my same experience. I was just too. like in, I was like a raw nerve, except instead yeah. of like being weepy or sensitive, I was just like, I was so pissed for like the first few months. I was so mad about everything. Yeah. And, and really what I came to was like, I did not ask for this problem. I did not invite this. It felt in some ways like this got just like heaped in my lap. And even if it was not of my creation, it is absolutely my work to clean this up. And like, I did not ask for this, but this shit ends with me. And I decided that really for the sake of my son, the sake of my own mental health and well-being, that I had to stop. That like, that, that was that. And I really haven't looked back, um, which is not to say that it's been an easy process for me. It's been a lot of emotional excavation to get to this place of like, yeah, I'm really okay. And this is the decision and this is where it ends. But I think that to me, the most interesting kind of piece of my story is that there was no rock bottom. There was no, like, I did not leave a trail of devastation and destruction in my wake. It was just like, I'm done hurting myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm done being in pain. Yeah. And I, I, I know from experience that that story actually is becoming more and more common. And that was my story too. It was, I did wasn't getting the side eye either. Like maybe my mom said that she, you know, it was Christmas day and I was like starting to drink at like noon, but you know, but then she was like, well, it's Christmas day. Like there was a couple of instances where like my mom or like a friend or my husband might've been like, you're having another glass of wine, but there wasn't like, I had no DUIs. I hadn't ruined any relationships. Um, Yeah. Finances were fine. And it just, for me, I don't know if you felt this way too, I had done enough research because a lot of us, you know, are typing into Google, do I have a problem with alcohol? <laughs> right. <laughs> Wanting the answer. Um, is and Google's that like, no, I'm, you're all good. Yeah, it's fine. Continue or, as you, you are. Know, the, the quizzes, some of the some of the quizzes ask you if you have with physical withdrawal symptoms, if you don't drink for a couple of days. And I didn't have that either. So it's it was very confusing because I answered like, I would get like a D minus. I'd, I'd get like a 60% and I'm like, um, so I'm a D minus drunk. Like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do with that. So I also, I think the thing for me that sort of pushed me over the edge was that I knew, and I hated this, that I knew this, I knew that I wouldn't get better Yeah, and that, um, that it was progressive, whether or not you think you know, identify as a quote unquote alcoholic. If you think it's a disease or not, it doesn't matter. Like research shows that if you do really have a problem with your relationship with alcohol, that 
we tried to go back to like being able to moderate and we just, we just can't like my hat is off to anybody that can and doesn't obsess on it and doesn't give it a second thought. I wanted to be that girl (laughs) and I couldn't. Um, and I also, I had the, I had the advantage of seeing my dad get sober when I was 18 and he went through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I kind of knew where I was headed. Right. No, I didn't kind of, that's a lie. I absolutely knew where I was headed if I kept drinking. And, um, I just, I was, I was more, I became more scared of where I would progress to versus what might happen if I tried sobriety. Yeah. And I, what I discovered for myself was that I was spending more and more time and energy and, you know, like brain bandwidth kind of managing it mm-hmm. with less and less effective results. A hundred percent. I could have said that exact sentence. <laughs> like, yeah. It's exhausting. It becomes exhausting and not worth it. Yeah. And, and the fact is at the end of the day, I did not want to manage my drinking. Yeah, I didn't either. Like, I, I can't, I, I can't imagine like, anything like more like boring for myself right. than having to like manage my drinking. <laughs> I wanted to be drunk, and yeah. mm-hmm. like, I don't want half a glass of wine at dinner. Like, set the bottle down and like quit treating me like a baby. And I'll just drink it straight from the bottle. Yeah. Like I wanted the results versus like to taste a really great wine that goes great with fish. Right. Like, I don't care about that. And, and, you know, I will, I will also say that like, well, two things. First of all, when I told him that I was quitting, my husband looked at me without blinking and was like, great, I'll do it with you. And also has not had a drink in two years. Wow. That's some support. And I don't know that I would have made it without that. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is not to say that like, if your partner doesn't do that, that that means something. But for me, it was an incredibly positive thing of having somebody who was like, great, I'm in it. And, you know, we now you know, have cake whenever we have like a big sobriety (laughs) milestone, we like order ourselves a cake. But I also, you know, not my husband clearly, but there were other people in my life where if I did try to manage it or did try to moderate it, I was actually met with resistance from those people Mm -hmm. who were like, why are you being like this? You're being a prude. And And it was very clear, like, I can't be managing this because I'm not getting the support there clearly what I need is just to say like, I am done. And this is no longer a conversation that we're having. Yeah. Those are hard. And I, and I want to say something to anybody who's listening who, cause I was, I was similar that my husband didn't drink by, by choice. Um, he doesn't have addiction issues that he knows of, but he, he just, I think he genuinely is one of those people who's allergic to alcohol. Some of the stories he told me of drinking in his early twenties and the react, the physical reactions that he was having. I'm like, Oh, that sounds like awful. So he doesn't drink. And I, I feel the same way. I think like if he would have been a partier and a heavy drinker, I probably wouldn't have gotten sober as quickly as I did. And it might have been much, much harder. So I say that for anyone who's listening, who is in a different 
scenario who's either thinking about quitting drinking or, you know, questioning your relationship with alcohol or newly sober and is struggling because you have a partner or a friendship circle who is not being as supportive. I want to assure you that there are resources out there that, that help. And I also just want to acknowledge the challenge that that is. Um, We see you. (laughs) And also there is a very, very large and welcoming community online of, of people, of women who will 100% support you. Yeah, it was, it was interesting for me kind of coming out with my story and being met with all of these people who were like, me too. And now we like read each other on and are, it's a whole other level of support. Mm -hmm. And, and it really is a beautiful thing. Like some of these people I've never met in my whole life and we are still like cheering each other on for each other's sobriety. And And what I will say is like, you know, we were talking about self-advocacy, like me saying that to my husband was probably like my biggest act of self-advocacy ever. It was like, this is the thing, this is the thing I need to do in, in order for me to like survive. And I think my husband probably also has something like alcohol sensitivity, maybe not allergy, but like alcohol sensitivity thing where like quitting drinking for him was like not a thing. He was like, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for saving yeah. me from that. <laughs> Given the reason mm-hmm. yeah. to not do it. It's it's interesting though. I mean, I could talk about this all day, but I, I also want to say, um, I don't always love to tie it up with the pretty bow and make people think that it was like the easiest thing I ever did. And, yeah. and <laughs> I was the same as you. I was extremely angry and I'm like, oh my God, you mean I can't? drink. Like I had two small children. My kids were toddlers at the time. And I'm like, if there's ever a time that I deserve to drink copious amounts of wine, it's now when I have these toddlers. And I was angry and also very scared, I think, to walk into my feelings without having any kind of buffer or numbing mechanism. And also my social life changed. Like it, it really did. Like it, it, it's amazing. I didn't realize how much our culture is obsessed with alcohol and how many things revolve around alcohol. And, and I, I mean, I can't be certain, but I do think there are times where I don't get invited to places because it's like Bunko and it revolves around wine and everyone's like, don't invite Andrea. She doesn't drink. And I'm like, I can still play Bunko. Like, just please have mineral water. There. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how to play. Like I'll still there and be entertaining for all of you. Um, like I still love to socialize. Like I'm an extrovert. So I, please still invite me. So also everybody listening, please invite me to your parties. <laughs> I mean, as an introvert, I'm like, I didn't go to your party before and I'm probably not going to it now. <laughs> I'll invite you anyway, Christine. I appreciate that. Thank you. Decline. Yes. Cause I know, cause my husband's an introvert and he's always like, I want to be invited. I just don't want to go. Right. Um, I, I so want I'll the, I want the option. <laughs> I want the, I want the option of turning you down. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I, I just, I want to, I think that, you know, we could have had this be like a three hour conversation, but we do need to wrap up. And I want to make sure that you have an opportunity if you wanted to circle back and say anything or, you know, tell everybody where they can find you. And so take it away. Like, where can people find you? And is there anything else that you want to say before we close? Yeah. So you can find me and all of my writing and my podcast and courses and all sorts of fun free resources over at my website, which is christytending.com. And, you know, I think that I got this really amazing advice about 
sobriety on retreat right before the pandemic hit in early 2020, I went on a four day yoga and meditation retreat, which is like the smartest planning I've ever done in my life. And I was, I was talking to one of my teachers there about my sobriety and he really just gave me this beautiful advice that I think doesn't just apply to sobriety, but could apply to really any big change that you're making. He's like, you're trying to do too much. He's like, you're trying to heal your entire past and build this entirely new future for your son. And you're just, you're trying to do too much. He's like, just don't drink today. Mm-hmm. And I was like, say what now? <laughs> He's like, just today and yesterday and tomorrow, just make sure you haven't had a drink. And the rest of it will eventually work its way out, but just focus on that for right now. And I literally turned him and I was like, you're saying that I don't have to heal all of my past trauma with every single person I've ever had a relationship with and this relationship with alcohol and build this bright new future for my child all in the same day. He's like, this is what I'm saying to you. So I think that to me was you know, one of the best teachings that I've ever gotten and really kind of ties us back to this. Just be compassionately present with yourself. Don't try to fix it all at the same time. Just show up for yourself and be nice. <laughs> show up for yourself and be nice. I love that so much, Christy. Thank you so much for being here. And remember everyone, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye. 